to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Atlanta campaign has long been considered by many historians the last realistic chance for the Confederacy to win the war on the battlefield, or at least delay Union victory long enough to allow the defeat of Lincoln in the election of November 1864, if only Joe Johnston had been left in charge of the rebel army. That argument is based on Johnston's success in delaying Sherman as he advanced north through through North Georgia. But not everyone sees the campaign in that light. We'll get to hear an alternative view of Johnston's generalship from Dr. Stephen Davis, author of A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, May 5th through July 18th, 1864. And that's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as always, almost always, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not speaking for the university or for the history department or anyone else, just myself. Our guest will always do the same thing. But proud to come from East Carolina University this week in particular, as last Saturday the Pirates on the football gridiron defeated North Carolina State for the second or third time in a row, I think six straight times defeating teams from the larger ACC conference. So we're enjoying that here on campus. The purple and gold spirit is strong, even as we remain here at ECU, the Rodney Dangerfield of North Carolina football. We we beat the flagship schools like a drum year after year, but we get no respect. It's not something that's going to change anytime soon. The flagship schools, North Carolina State and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, are not going to yield any 
uh, measure of, of, of regard for East Carolina, regardless of what happens on the football field or regardless of how many books we publish here in the history department compared to our peers at the other schools, because it's just not something that changes. Uh, having attended a, a flagship school myself, the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, I understand the the feeling that comes with that. And for that matter, having gotten a graduate degree at Harvard University, I don't know if I mentioned that recently, uh, I have a graduate degree from Harvard University. There, there you have institutional arrogance taken to a, an absolute art form, and no amount of accomplishment by other institutions can possibly dent the self-regard of such a place. So ECU will keep striving and winning games, and the other places will continue to uh, bask in their superiority. We can both live with that, I think. I can especially live with that this week uh, because, uh, as some of you know, if you're readers of the excellent magazine, The Civil War Monitor, I am now officially famous as they published a, uh, an essay, The Books That Built Me, in their Books and Authors column uh, that I wrote, and along with the brief uh, few paragraphs where I talk about books I've found particularly influential, Civil War books that is specifically that helped influence how I got where where I am in terms of writing about the Civil War. There's also a big picture of me, so this uh, officially makes me famous now. Not quite as famous as the East Carolina commercials that they run during some of the football games. Not the main commercial. If you watch ECU play in ESPN 8 or whatever the, the level we're being broadcast on. Not that commercial, but there's another one for ECU Distance Ed. And at one point they run past a montage of photographs, uh, each for a split second. And one of them is the one that appears in this uh, Civil War Monitor article. It's me. So if my wife and I are, say, watching Jeopardy and sitting on the sofa eating the last of dinner, watching game show, and that commercial comes on, suddenly there, there I am on the screen. We both scream at the top of our lungs because I'm famous, and then I'm gone. They're on to the next, the next picture before you know it. Uh, but now I can look at that same picture, and so can you, in the Civil War Monitor, which I would recommend as a magazine, even if I were not in it myself. It is really... Uh, the only thing going compared to the old North and South magazine, uh, or even the Columbiad, it, it's it's certainly one worth getting today. So uh, now that I'm famous, uh, if you have ideas for the show, have your people get in touch with my people, and you know maybe I'll get back to you. Uh, it's just going to change everything around here. It will not, however, change teaching. Uh, History 3225 perks right along as we've gotten up to the Compromise of 1850, and tomorrow we'll be involved with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. If you're in the class and listening to the show, bring me the names of any two historical figures we talk about tonight, and uh, I'll put a star by your name in the the big ledger uh, of extra credit. If you're not listening for credit, just for interest, you'll want to know the upcoming show's uh, continue to move from strength to strength in terms of the, the people who've agreed to come and talk with us. Next week, Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Violence, Honor, and Manhood in the Union Army, a book I'm very interested in reading and, and wish I'd gotten to sooner. 
Uh, she's also working on a new book. We can ask about that. On the 28th, Kathy Wright, a curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, will join us. On October 5th, three weeks from today, Mark Dunkelman, a longtime friend of the show. His latest book is Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War General, and Gilded Age Politician. And on traditional Columbus Day, October 12th, Deborah Redden Van Tal will be talking about her book, The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. And there's lots more lined up after that. Go to the Impediments of War page on Facebook or the website impedimentsofwar, all one word, dot O-R-G. Find out who's going to be on. Find out who's been on and click on the uh, Amazon logo there to buy books from our authors. I, I continue to get email from you complaining about the money that the show costs you because when you hear about these books, you must have them. And I'm the same way. Uh, I revel in the, the opportunity to read all this stuff. So uh, please continue to support the authors and support Civil War Talk Radio by going through the website when you uh, buy things at Amazon. You can also support the show directly with donations to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. There's a PayPal button on the Impediments of War website that Mark Gaffney maintains for us. This year I've announced it's the kitchen remodel year. I'm going to take all the tens of thousands of dollars donated in the year and use it to build a fabulous new kitchen. The middle part of the step is missing. That's the tens of thousands of dollars. Right now we're looking at a new tablecloth. Uh, so if if you feel so moved, contribute. Or maybe next week we'll change the whole uh, approach if, if this is not uh, maybe not the right way to appeal to the pockets of listeners. Well, let's move on to the show, back to the 1860s, and talk with our guest tonight. He is Dr. Steve Davis. Stephen Davis, a long-time Atlantan, has been interested in the Civil War, according to the back of the book, since fourth grade. We'll find out more about his background and his new book, A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlantic Campaign, from Dalton through Kennesaw Mountain to the Chattahoochee River. May 5th, July 18, 1864. Uh, Dr. Davis, are you there? Dr. Prokopovich, I'm on the air. You are on the air. Welcome. Um, To save time, call me Jerry, and I'll call you Steve. How's that? Good. It works, Jerry. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, Well, thank you for being on the show. The first thing I have to ask, having looked at your biography, is that you studied with Bell Wiley, the uh, legendary Civil War historian uh, at Emory University. Good for you, Jerry. Now, you went to Michigan, didn't you? I did. Go blue. I can't remember the Civil War uh, scholar who would have been at the University of Michigan. Probably not. But down here at Emory, we boasted Bell Irvin Wiley, and I was pleased in my, la- in my year, 68, 69, 70, to have been in Dr. Wiley's classes among his last years at Emory, which I think ended circa 72 or 73. So, uh, John Shy was the military historian at Michigan uh, when I was there, but he focused more on the colonial era. Uh, But at Harvard, I worked with David Herbert Donald, and and I felt that was... That's no small small patronage right there. 
It, it is not. But that's why I want to ask you about Dr. Wiley. Tell, tell me something. What, what was it like to, to work with someone like that? Well, you know, remember I was uh, undergraduate. I went to Chapel Hill for uh, my master's. And by the time I returned to Emory for my Ph.D., Dr. Wiley had retired from the history department. But everyone mm-hmm. knew that Dr. Wiley was among the nation's leading civil warriors, lar- largely because of his work for Johnny Reb and Billy Yank. Mm-hmm. I haven't yet come across a student, um, an alum of Dr. Wiley's class, who do- classes who don't remember some of his mannerisms, his owl black-rimmed glasses. I'm familiar with the way that he would keep his office door slightly cracked, always kind of inviting you but signaling you, okay, maybe I'm busy right now. But you would hear from inside, he would answer the phone, Wiley here. I learned later that he learned that salutation spending a year in England. Interesting. I like that. I may have to adopt that. Uh, that's a great, great way to By answer. By the way, Jerry, you've got a great photo in Civil War Monitor, and we're all glad that you chose to pursue history and not the JD degree with that baggage that you talked about that would have ensued from a lifetime of lawyering. Well, you know, it, I, I don't want to imply that all lawyers end up unhappy uh, because I'm, I know many of them don't. You're more graphic than that in your article, but that's okay. <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> listeners, if you haven't read it yet, you know, I'll leave it for you to, to find out what I thought of what would have happened to me. Uh, I, I think it has a lot to do with who you encounter, uh, just as you had the good fortune to encounter Professor Wiley, or I met uh, Professor Shy at Michigan, and then later Professor Donald. Uh, I, I didn't have a mentor in the legal field who, who uh, helped me understand why it was a, a great thing to do, and it, it did not catch my imagination the same way history already had done. Uh, I think there are many lawyers who do wonderful work, but I know there are also some I know who admit that it's their nine to five job and they, their passion is what they do on weekends or at night. And I feel very lucky to do what I'm passionate about all day. Same uh, here. And by the way, rereading your monitor column, you and I both had, in my opinion, adolescent, the same adolescent wellspring. I was very fond of Bruce Catton's American Heritage Picture History of the Civil War, 1960. I was a a year or two older when it came out. But kind of like you, everyone remembers not only reading it, but studying David Greenspan's full-color paintings of those tiny little rebels and Yankees fighting on the battlefield. Aren't they something that... uh at one point, I, I think I estimated half the people I'd interviewed on this show said that book was what got them started. Yeah. It, 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 it's a marvelous book. Uh, and and every, anyone in the field, if, if you're a young listener and have not looked at that book yet, go get it tomorrow, and those, those pictures will grab you. So when, when, did you become interested at a very early age in Civil War history? I did indeed, Jerry. It helps, of course, to grow up in Atlanta where I've lived since the age of three, and I can say that the Civil War virus took hold of me in the fourth grade. So ever since that time, I've been reading about the war, visiting the battlefields. Uh, As I say, 
I went to Emory in, in the hopes of studying under Dr. Wiley, took, like you, took a master's and a Ph.D., and the writing about history and the Civil War in particular emerged as, an, as a hobby for me still in avocation, as I'm not a professional historian such as you, but sometimes I uh, think, and I think you'll agree, especially on this radio broadcast, that the nice thing about the Civil War is that it allows a wedding of the talents and interests of both professional historians and we amateurs who might otherwise simply be called buffs or enthusiasts. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think it is... It may be unique in fields of study within history uh, to have such a, a mix. The, the events like Civil War roundtables or the Lincoln Forum in Gettysburg every year that attract hundreds, thousands of people who are not professional historians, but many of whom have bits of, of, of research expertise that, that exceeds what anyone else has. I'm going to take a breath and take a quick break here. We're going to step away let them do a couple announcements and come back and talk about your book. The book we're talking about tonight, A Long and Bloody Task, is about the Atlanta campaign. The author is Stephen Davis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Stephen Davis, author of A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlantic Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw Mountain to the Chattahoochee River, uh, covering the first phase of the campaign up to the the confrontation at Atlanta. Steve, let me ask you, uh, it would be a pleasure to chat for hours about our respective pasts, but listeners want to hear about this book, so I'm going to ask you uh the, the main question from the top, 
there's so much written about the Atlanta campaign, uh, some of which you describe in your, your section on further reading. Why do we need another book? What what does this add to uh, um, Albert Castle and the other uh, authors who've already covered this? Well, let's talk about that because you know the the charm of of being a civil warrior is that you see all kinds of new generations coming along with varying levels of interest and and appetites. Albert Castell's great work on the Atlanta campaign of 1992 will be the volume. But think of the but think of all of the people who course through, let's say, a national battlefield park visitor center and the guy says, "Well, thank you, but I don't want to read that 700 pound tome, I mean 700 page tome." And that's where Ted Savis and Chris Mikowski came up with this series of paperbacks. It's, they're all about the same size, oh, 100, 120, 30 pages. And it's all geared at the guy who says, hey, give me something that I'm spurred on right now. I can read in a day or so. Give me an overview with some nice pictures, and I'll feel that I've got some Atlanta campaign in my gut. So you're right, Jerry. No one, in my opinion, should attempt to replace, much less overshadow, Albert Castell. But there are always further niches for presenting information in a variety of styles and formats. I hope this answers your question. Well, I, I think it does, but I, it may even sell the book short a little bit. It's not just a, a, a summary like the, the magazine-sized volumes at the National Park Service Eastern National produce that you can buy at the various national parks uh, that cover each battlefield. Those are very well done, and they're often by people uh, well known in the field. They basically give a you know thirty page layout of what happened. Uh, this is longer than that. It's a book, not a magazine. It has supplements like a driving tour that add to the value. But the writing, uh, it, it's more than just a a dry account of here's where the armies went. You. Well, thanks, because uh, that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say you are free with your opinions. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? That's another part of the answer, Jerry. One of the <laughs> things that, and and I'm probably just as long of tooth as you are, given the bio that I read, um, <laughs> but growing up as a civil warrior, the way I, the, I look at it, what have we learned since the centennial? In the 1960s, uh, Joe Johnston ruled the, my hometown, Atlanta. But, <laughs> but since that time, especially in the last, let's say, generation, we've, we've toppled jo, um, Joe Johnston on his head. And there are all kinds of new insights that tend to criticize Johnston's handling of the first phase and give General John Bell Hood, who took over July 18th, a better shake in the last month and a half of the campaign. Well, if we look at the campaign, you know, most listeners, uh, I, I'm sure, are familiar with the outlines of the campaign. Uh, Sherman is, is, leaves Chattanooga, heads toward Atlanta, and Johnson has to stop him, and that's the, the two-sentence version. In the, in the classic version... Johnston 
sets up at various places, uh, starting at Dalton and moving south, Rusaka and others, and, and, and sets up to block the progress of Sherman's army. And in each case, Sherman comes up, observes that he's faced with a strong frontal position that he, he doesn't think he can profitably attack. So he sends part of his force around the flank. And Johnson observes this and sees I'm going to be outflanked and I can't do anything about that. Uh, I can't attack successfully, so I'll pull back to the next line. And you you repeat this action half a dozen times over the course of May, June, and July. Nine, now, to be exact. So the classic argument is that Johnston is, is a brilliant tactician preventing Sherman from making uh, speedy progress toward Atlanta. But you're saying that's not really how, how it's seen any longer. Well, at least not... In, in my perspective, and, mm-hmm. and Jerry, what you call classic is what I call the Paleozoic era <laughs> of Atlanta campaign historiography. Um, gone are the days where Johnston is to be hailed and lauded as a masterpiece of Fabian tactics. In my perspective, in this paperback and a few other things I've written, Johnston mm-hmm. was characteristically, genetically disposed to the retrograde. We saw it in the peninsula on, in Virginia. We saw that he had no spine uh, in Vicksburg. President Davis had already soured upon him as an aggressive commander when he took command of the army in December of 63. And moreover, one of the nuggets that I found, and I think I mentioned it, the campaign has not even begun. Johnston is at Dalton when he wires the chief Confederate engineer in Atlanta and says, hey, I'm going to be in Atlanta. Show me the fortifications. That's a month before Sherman took his first step out of Tunnel Hill, and Johnston is already thinking about being in the fortifications of Atlanta. Dr. Prokovovich, is that a mastership of Fabian tactics? Well, it, it, you make an interesting point that he, he does the same thing in the Virginia Peninsula in 1862 when he's facing McClellan, uh, that he's willing to let McClellan advance right up from Fortress Monroe to the gates of Richmond and then strike him there and, and Lee and Davis and overrule him and, and uh, he bottles up McClellan instead at Yorktown. But he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to fight. However... Uh, the the question that occurs then is, your book shows that each time there's an engagement during this campaign, uh, probes on the flanks, sometimes a f- limited frontal assault to see if the enemy is really there or how strong they are. Each time one of these happens, the defending side repulses the attack with relative ease and with relatively light casualties compared to heavy losses for the attacker. Uh, so if Johnston had been aggressive from the start of the campaign, why wouldn't he have just thrown his army away in futile frontal assaults? Um, if I'm following your, your thinking, Professor, two things come to mind. First of all, G- General Johnston was certainly not the bulldogish uh, uh, frontal assault specialist <laughs> that Ulysses Grant was proving to be about this time in Virginia. Second of all, 
Johnston was very, very mindful that at the outset of the campaign, he was outnumbered two to one. But there's a big difference. Where, uh, whereas Bob Lee fought Grant without reinforcements, the Confederate government reinforced within a month of the campaign General Johnston's army uh, by 15 to 20,000, so that by early June, Joe Johnston has the largest army of the con- in the Confederacy, certainly the largest army uh, ever of the Western theater. The question is, what did he do about it? Nothing. He waited for Sherman to outflank him. But that, the, I guess the question I raise then is, what, what could he have done with that number of troops that would have been successful, given that the, the, the tactical assault is almost never going to work? What, what maybe, are his options? Maybe not. Let's think of what uh, Castell says. Mm-hmm. Johnston w- adhered to the uniformly passive defensive. General Lee, at least before he was bottled up at Petersburg, was mm-hmm. a master of the offensive-defensive. And in fact, even in the Petersburg lines at Stedman and Fort Harrison and others, would try to use an offensive-defensive. Joe Johnston was never an offensive-defensive, pa- using his strength maybe to parry against Sherman's flanking maneuvers. If you'll also remember, Jerry, John Sherman was absolutely surprised that Johnston allowed him the luxury of a full week, July 10th through the 17th, to get his forces across the Chattahoochee. Think of what Romulu Guderian would have done with an elastic defense along the, the south bank of the Chattahoochee. So the a mixing metaphors, a mixing but, wars. But the point is well taken that 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 there's a simply passive retreating defense and there's a an aggressive offensive defensive com- combined. Um, but I'm I'm fascinated by this point because this is one that that is. So I'm going to probe a little further on it. The example of Lee in the Overland campaign, which is happening at exactly the same time. Correct. He's he's also facing a larger army. He's also defending a fixed point in Richmond. Ultimately, he's also repeatedly outflanked and and or threatens to be outflanked and falls back uh, ahead of Grant's army at each point. The difference there there are several differences. One is that Grant is much more aggressive than Sherman in a tactical sense and and, and attacks. But the key point is he ends up back at Richmond just as Johnson ends up back at Atlanta. He he can't keep Grant away any more than Johnston could keep Sherman away. Could either of them have done anything to, to keep the Union Army away from its objective? Um, one of the, in your classics uh, literature that you have referred to, Mm-hmm. One of the old questions is that, well, if Johnston used his infantry as well as he could on the defensive and could not launch even any parrying infantry blows against Sherman's flanking maneuvers, could Johnston have used his cavalry hmm. against Sherman's lifeline? Because the key difference, Jerry, between the Virginia theater, the cockpit of the war, as we'll call it, and the Western theater, the George, 
Everything is within 100 miles, Richmond to Washington. There are no extended supply lines. Besides, the rivers of Virginia, especially the James, kept Grant supplied. On the other hand, in Georgia, Sherman, every time he advanced a mile, was farther from his supplies in Chattanooga and ultimately Nashville and Louisville. So Johnston had not gotten too far into Georgia before Governor Brown and others, not to mention General Johnston himself, are calling upon the Confederate government to unleash Bedford Forest, maybe John Morgan, to launch raids against Sherman's railroad logistical lifelines extending back from, let's say, Chattanooga to Nashville and certainly Chattanooga to Dalton when when that uh, part of the campaign ensues. But uh, the Confederate government always said, no, Forrest and Morgan are needed where they are. Send your own cavalry. And Johnston said, no, I can't. And if you if you remember, it was Tom Connolly who in the John in the Bragg papers in for his book in 1971 uh, can, uh, found that Joe Johnston wrote a secret letter to General Bragg on July 1. I can't tell you how many times I've asked Joe Johnston for permission to raid against Sherman's lifeline, but he says no. I've got to keep my cavalry here on the flank. Jerry. So, so Wheeler wanted to go. Yeah. But he now in. In another campaign in the same theater, uh, two years earlier, when Don Carlos Buell is advancing against Braxton Bragg, that's exactly what happens. Forrest undercuts Buell with the raid on Murfreesboro. Uh, the Confederates destroy a key tunnel uh, yeah. along yeah, the, the, the railroad. Yeah, the Morgan and the Gallatin Tunnel. Well right. done. So this, and that does ap- completely... Uh, undercut Buell's campaign, and he never does capture Chattanooga uh, because of these these cavalry efforts and these attempts on his supply line. Sherman, so Sherman's line is much longer and perhaps more vulnerable. So you're suggesting, if could Wheeler alone have, have no, the few thousand no, men have done that? No. Remember I said this was a classic argument, but that mm-hmm. I have consigned it to the eras of mastodons and archaeopteryxes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. No. My view is that both Sherman and John Bell Hood, Johnston's successor, succumbed to the typical Civil War officer's myopia, that is, the belief that cavalry could achieve a strategic end by raiding the enemy lifeline. It never happened in Virginia for the two reasons I've given. The lifelines were short and river-fed. In the West, it really only happened one or two times, Professor, and you've named them. When Forrest and Van Dorn... Uh, hobbled Grant's uh, um, advance into Mississippi in December of 62, and when in July of 62, Morgan succeeded in hobbling Buell's advance by blowing up the Gallatin Tunnel. But aside from that, Civil War cavalry raids proved uniformly ineffective to tear up more than three or four miles, which, by this stage of the game, Sherman's engineers could repair within 48 to 72 hours. So this brings us back still to the question, then, what what better could have done, if, if with hindsight, uh, if with the best tactician in the Confederacy, what could have been done to stop Sherman? I don't think anything. 
mm-hmm. catch me in my quippy moments, and I'll say, <laughs> Bob Lee and an atom bomb. But no. Um, you, you may be familiar with the work that a paperback I put out more than a decade ago. I called it Atlanta Will Fall. And I'll tell the story because Henry Watterson, the veteran newspaper reporter for the Mobile newspaper, writing under the nom de plume shadow, on May 21, the campaign's two weeks into operation, and he writes a column for the, for the p- paper saying, um, I don't know Sherman's strength, but he's got more guys. Uh, Johnston's a good general, but he's already showing a proclivity for the retreat. And Sherman is showing no, no disposition to make an error. In my opinion, Atlanta will fall. Jerry, he's writing that on May 21. Two weeks into the campaign, it's published in the Advertiser and Register on the May 24th. So, so when when Johnston says, even a month earlier, the, when he writes to Atlanta and says, tell me about Show the fortifications. Show me the fortifications. So, so maybe we should give credit to Johnston for foresight because he, he sees this is the only way this can possibly end. Yeah, you call it credit for foresight. I say that he was already thinking about retreating to Atlanta, which ultimately, if you remember, he did before McClellan in mm-hmm. the spring of 62, retreated to the prize city, then hoped to launch a knockout blow. He did that at Fair Oak, Seven Pines. He, he claimed to his deathbed that he, he intended to deliver a blow against Sherman after Sherman had crossed the Chattahoochee, and, and the community is still split as to Johnston's veracity. And that's really a key point, that, that he, he does, in 1862 at Richmond, he does finally make an offensive movement and launch quite a powerful attack. Uh, we don't know if he would have done that in Atlanta because uh, President Davis loses patience and replaces him with John Bell Hood. We're going to take another short break. Uh, I want to come back and ask you a little bit about Johnston's uh, nemesis, General Sherman, and we'll talk about that and other things with our guest, Stephen Davis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Stephen Davis, author of A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign, from Dalton through Kennesaw Mountain to the Chattahoochee River. It covers the first three months of the campaign, uh, May, June, and July, 1864. In our first, in our in our previous segment, we were talking about Joe Johnston and the task he faced in stopping Sherman and his proclivity for retreating without uh, without really putting up a fight. Would he have put up that grand fight in front of Atlanta? We will never know. He was, of course, relieved from command before that could happen. Uh, but Steve, I want to ask you about uh, William Tecumseh Sherman uh, living in North Carolina, as I have for the last uh, decade plus. I've come to recognize that General Sherman is not the most popular figure in, in the South. Uh, no. Some of the, uh, but in, in your book, there, there's, there's an undercurrent of, of criticism, I think it's safe to say. One of the points you make about him is that he does not emulate Grant in attacking in a forthright manner. Uh, and my question to you is, is that a bad thing? Did that no, and and let me let me attempt to clarify a little bit. Sure, I'm not quite certain that I criticize General Sherman for uh, failing to attack frontally. If anything, I call attention to the infrequency, Jerry, with mm-hmm. which he does that, especially mm-hmm. at Kennesaw Mountain, and then to lesser extents at New Hope Church and Pickett's Mill. But what, but, but what I will comment on is that General Sherman, whenever he launched an attack, it was not a flanking blow, as Johnston attempted at Cassville on May 19th. Mm-hmm. At, uh, in, Res- in Resaca, New Hope Church, Pickett's Mill, Kennesaw Mountain, um, Sherman always resorted to the frontal attack. He was not a gifted tactician. And maybe he that's seemed, the criticism that you okay. are referring to. Yeah, and, and I, I think you point that out, and, and that he was aware of it, that he was not, uh, his, his battlefield performance was never his strong suit. He was a, uh, an operational Mediocre. and a strategic leader on the battlefield. Yeah, remember, yes. he got rebuffed by Pat Claiborne at Missionary Ridge. His mm-hmm. attack at Chickasaw Bluffs in December of 62 fell apart. Even worse, Jerry... You remember, I'm down here in Atlanta. We don't think highly of General Sherman. Remember after (laughs) Kennesaw Mountain, he wrote Ellen claiming, I regard the death and mangling of a couple of thousand men as a morning dash? Even Grant would not have written that kind of butchering language. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that is a comment I I use in class uh, every semester. I'm fascinated by it. I, I have a different spin on it, and let me run it by you and get your reaction, uh, that he's acknowledging the hardening effect that war has, uh, and it has it on us too as Civil War readers. When we read about the first Bull Run, 
we finish reading a book, we have 400 young men killed in a day, oh my God, the 400 casualties. And by the time we're reading about the Atlanta campaign, oh, skirmish, 400 killed, uh, it's not a big deal. We've been hardened by exposure to what happened over those four years. And Sherman is saying the same thing, much as Lee says, you know, it's well that war is so terrible, we should grow too fond of it. He's looking out over the, the, the horrible field of Fredericksburg. Uh, he's acknowledging that, that you get used to this. Uh, it's, not good a good, it's not a good thing, but he's acknowledging it. And, and I think that the, the biographers of Sherman, when they quote that kind of death and mangling letter to Ellen, they're talking mm-hmm. about the hardening effect of, of war on Sherman, and Sherman is not afraid to acknowledge that his psyche, his soul, his sensibilities have been hardened by war. But on the same time, at the same time, Professor, let's also remember that General Sherman's bark was worse than his bite. More than True. once did he talk upon about the necessity of exterminating every southern man, woman, and child in order to bring the peace. That's total war. And then finally, if you remember a couple of points in in an earlier book by me, General Sherman finally got to wage total war, but not against the rebels. When he was general-in-chief of the armies after the Civil War and directing the campaign against the Plains Indians, he was able finally to wage total war by exterminating the Plains Indians, man, woman, and child. Well, certainly that was the objective, although obviously there, there were survivors as there are today. Yeah, but right. The, well, the point yeah, is well taken. You're, you're, very, you're, being, a, you're being very kind to, to the notion of, of total war, and you're, be, you're, you're, you're being respectful of Sherman. The Plains Indians would have a different perspective on your comment. Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to be respectful of the Plains Indians to, to, that we acknowledge they're still with us. They're, they're not a historical. Very artifact. good, and so are the rebels. Uh, okay. <laughs> there. But, let, but getting back to Sherman, um, the point about that, that harsh comment and that acknowledgement uh, that, that I find interesting, and, and his bark is worse than his bite, but he does acknowledge this, uh, is that Sherman is willing to be a killer, as Lee was a killer, as Stonewall Jackson was a killer. Grant was a killer, uh, they, they could face what Lincoln called the awful arithmetic and understand you had to spend so many human lives to accomplish a goal and ultimately to save lives in the long run. And other generals like McClellan never got that. They, they could not get over their squeamishness, and thus they could not be successful in battle. A very good point, and that's what, of course, cost Buell his command because, like exactly. McClellan, he was a practitioner of soft war. Mm-hmm. So, but it is uh, it is a, a shocking comment that, that he makes, the morning dash comment, and uh, definitely worth thinking about. Let me ask a, a different, well, let me go on to another general, because you, you have an appendix about him that listeners ought to hear about. Uh, John Bell Hood, what's new in the world of John Bell Hood? Plenty. <laughs> uh, some of our listeners will be aware that within the last three or four years, I kid you not, a descendant of General Hood found in an attic of another member of the family are papers that General Hood had kept privately and had been secreted by members of the family, long-lost letters, some of which correspondence shed new light, 
not only about Hood's actions during the war, but especially about his private life and post-war marriage to Marianna Hennon. Um, when's the last time you, you heard the phrase, oh yeah, uh, so-and-so's letters were found in an attic? This has literally <laughs> happened within the last five years. And some of the, the stories, uh, most famously Hood's uh, supposed addiction to painkillers. That, uh, that's dead as Julius Caesar. So the papers show that that, that just well, is not yeah, the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to mention the fact, uh, you, may be, you may remember that 15 years ago, I wrote in blue and gray, I went <laughs> through the literature. Okay, what's the literature of of Hood's alleged drug use. You go through, and everyone was using subjunctives and hypotheticals. <laughs> if Hood had been feeling, Hood might have resorted. There was not one contemporaneous observation of Hood's use of opiates, uh, even of alcohol. I think um, that's one of the, the fascinating examples of how Civil War history feeds on itself, that uh, somebody makes one comment, another historian picks it up, and suddenly it's in the literature, and now, uh, and it's very hard to eradicate. And, and uh, as you imply, Jerry, um, the discovery by Stephen Hood, a descendant of the Hood papers, in those papers he found the medical journals of Dr. John Darby, who was in 64 General Hood's personal physician. Dr. Darby saw to his recovery after the Gettysburg um, uh, arm wound and his recovery after the Chickamauga amputation. Dr. Darby uh, prescribed, prescribed and administered the small doses of morphine. Uh, and within two weeks after the amputation recorded in his daily logs, no further pain medicine needed for the general. So we now know that Correct. that myth has just got into the literature, and, and now it's coming back out. Uh, the another strong point of, of this emerging Civil War series, as you mentioned, is many of the books, including yours, uh, include discussion of the preservation of sites and driving instructions, driving tour to see the sites. Given that Atlanta has sprawled enormously since 1864, is there much? to see of the Atlanta campaign uh, for a visitor today? In Atlanta, no. You have to be very, very dedicated. That doesn't mean that we don't entertain groups, uh, (laughs) even groups from quite afar. But they have to understand that when they want to come to Atlanta and see the battlefield, they're going to see historical markers that were set up 50 years ago they're going to see a few monuments or memorials on the sites of the battlefield, but that's dodging traffic and, and as a pedestrian racing across the street for fear of being hit by a bus. <laughs> but if you get up into the mountains, you start to see some... Yeah, some Kennesaw more- Mountain, uh, there is a delightful... Uh, State Battlefield Park, Pickett's Mill, and we had Stephen Briggs write about preserving Pickett's Mill, which which land was bought by the state 50 years ago, and it's pristine. The Kennesaw Mountain Battlefield dates back from federal purchases in the 1920s. So if you're an Atlantan, you have to be able to drive an hour out 
But it, mm-hmm. as always, it's well worth the trip. So that is something uh, listeners will want to go out and see. Uh, so we've talked about Sherman, talked about Hood, talked about Johnson, certainly. Uh, is there a, a figure in this campaign who particularly takes your interest? You know, that's that's very interesting, Jerry. I had not prepared for the question, and that's kind of <laughs> what we wanted in the, in this um, series. But you know, I'm going to I'm going to throw you a curveball. Okay. It's not even an officer. It's not even a soldier. It's Mary Boykin Chestnut. Ah. Uh, especially for my work on General Hood, which mm-hmm. is ongoing. You, when I wanted to learn more about General Hood, I didn't turn to his memoir, Advance and Retreat. I turned to Mary Boykin Chestnut because she is spending the winter of 63-64 with Hood, who is assiduously courting Sally Buchanan Preston, who's Mary's good friend. And in her diary, especially as edited by Van Woodward, circa 82, You just learn so much about Hood, and I'm grateful for her and her diary. That's really interesting. You you hadn't expected that one, did you? I did not. Professor Donald (laughs) talked about uh, Hood and and Buck Preston's uh, relationship, their courtship, as a metaphor for the, the Southern military and Southern civilian side. And as the military is whittled away, in Hood's case, limb by limb, uh, you know, Miss Preston can't finally uh, commit to him. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, an, it's an argument. Murray Hood's excellent biographer has talked about this kind of quixotic nature of Hood. Uh, his, his his outdated, outdated soldierly style on the battlefield, mm-hmm. personal bravery, frontal attacks, and his similarly quixotic. Efforts to win over Buck Preston. Um, in both, there's kind of a, a, a melancholy romance there in a peculiar uh, kind of duality. I think that you're probably getting what I'm talking about. Wow, but it's a fascinating subject. Well, I wish we had more time to discuss uh, these ramifications of the campaign, uh, well beyond the book itself. Listeners, you will get a hint of the the many fascinating observations of uh, our guest tonight, Stephen Davis, in this book, A Long and Bloody Task, the Atlanta Campaign from Dalton through Kennesaw Mountain to the Chattahoochee River. Uh, We are promised a sequel that will carry the campaign further. And there are earlier books uh, by Dr. Davis that you will also want to look at. Uh, There's just a lot there. It's really interesting. And, Steve, it has been a real pleasure talking with you this evening. All my pleasure, Jerry. Thanks again. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm